Hey, hey, welcome on in. It's your boy KV coming at you from my soul renegade sound studios right here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm welcoming you to another episode of the Ken Valdez Approach. Man, I got a banger of an episode for you this week. I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to my friend, Mr. Walter Trout. Now, Walter is a legend in the blues world. This guy has done so much. He has lived so much life that it would make your head spin. The things that he's gone through, the ups and downs and twists and turns, and his career is incredible. The guy got a chance to uh, take on the seat that many other legends have taken on, playing with John Mayall and his Blues Breakers. As a matter of fact, Walter looks at Mr. Mayall as as a father figure of sorts. We're going to be talking to him all about that. We're going to find out the inspiring words that uh, Carlos Santana told him. We're going to find out about the craziness that went down in Omaha. Man, this is so heavy. And Walter completely wore his heart on his sleeve for this one. So without further ado, let's get on into this interview with Mr. Walter Trout. This week, we are joined by a living legend, a guy who I believe uh, bridged what I consider to be, you know, more on the traditional side of blues with the new school, the new sound. He is a guy that was at the forefront of this whole thing. And, uh, man, he's a great guy all the way around who has just an amazing story. And I'm honored to call him a friend. My buddy, Walter Trout. Walter, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good, Ken. It's good to be here, man. It's good to uh, be anywhere, you know? I feel you. Well, you, you were just in uh, in Europe, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Well, I was in Denmark. Uh, you know, I, I have a house over there, and I, I live there some of the time. And I was there for um, – I went there for Christmas, actually, and I've been back. In, I'm in California now, and I've been here just for four days. Oh, my gosh, man. Is it a – is a bit of culture shock, you know, coming back and forth, or is this something? Well, that you're I used can to tell you that, that our house is up in the very northwest of Denmark, right in a national park, and our backyard, we're, we're right on the edge of the national park, and our backyard is a bunch of sand dunes, and when you cross the sand dunes, you're at the North Sea, and uh-huh. it is wild and woolly and winds every day of you know 30 40 50 miles an hour and rain and it's true viking place so to come from there and then get off the plane in uh in los angeles and have my buddy drive me down here at the beach in huntington beach with palm trees and 80 degrees i'm like yeah and i i kind of dig it actually you know i came out here 46 years ago from Jersey because I kind of had it with uh, like, you know, I grew up in the snow and all that and uh, just soon be on the beach. But it's just me, you know, man. Well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. So you moved from Jersey. Did you get your start playing music in Jersey or was it uh, was it out in California? Oh, no, I was playing music in Jersey. I was in a very um, 
very popular working club band that did a lot of covers and we played in clubs for people to dance to and we had a big horn line and we did Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears and um, stuff like that. And then we would take, um, we did a lot of Motown and Stax Vault stuff. And then we would sometimes take maybe um, a Rolling Stone song and turn it into a horn line tune. I remember doing Brown Sugar and um, the, the band leader was my dear friend, Jack Jacket, who I still know. He plays with Richie Fure now. Um, oh, wow. The guy from Buffalo Springfield. Jack, Jack was just here visiting oh, me a couple days ago, but he was the band leader and he would take songs like Brown Sugar or, or a Santana tune and he, he'd arrange them um, for a horn line. And, and we were very popular, you know, and then that band kind of self-destructed and I kind of had my own band with some of those guys, um, which became from, went from a nine piece down to a four piece. It was guitar, wow. bass, drums, and keyboard like I have now. Sure. And we started doing all my tunes. And as soon as we started doing originals, we couldn't get a gig. Nobody wanted to hear us. Yeah. So, um, so I just packed up my, my Volkswagen and drove out here because I thought this was the place. Beautiful. But I do say, I will say the last time I played in Minneapolis, I played with Eric Gales and it was that uh, polar vortex. I remember that so well. Below zero or something. Yeah, I remember being at that show and that was, uh, yeah, you guys were troopers. I couldn't believe it because we had just seen each other at the NAMM show. And I just remember calling you because I was I was kind of nervous. I called you and I called Eric just to make sure that you guys were all right. Because, man, it was it, that was that was that proverbial, you know, Minnesota winter, Minnesota cold. If I remember correctly, that was also the weekend that it got something to be like, you know, with wind chill. It was something like 60 below or something like that. Yeah, it was. And, and I, was I remember um I got into the hotel there and turned on the news and they were telling people that if they went outside for longer than two minutes, that the liquid in their eyeballs would freeze. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like, whoa, man, this is a little different, you know? Yeah. Of all the things that you could find out from the news, you, you, you find yeah. out about that, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. If I remember correctly, it was actually at that show if I remember correctly, we had a conversation and you were telling me that you played with Joe Tex. Is that correct? I played with Joe Tex. Wow. Yeah. Tell me about that. I played with him once. Ah. And um, I can tell you the truth. Sure. Um, he was really nice to me, but when it was time to get paid, a guy walked in the dressing room with a big suitcase full of money. It happened to be counterfeit money. Oh, wow. Joe opened the suitcase. There were thousands of dollars of counterfeit money. He held it up and said, don't this money look good, man? This money looks really good. And he handed me 40 bucks. And I said, look, if you're going to give me fake money, give me a grand. And he said, <laughs> you said you'd play for 40 bucks. And I said, yeah, but 40 Real bucks? Actually, real bucks. And he yeah. said, what's wrong with this money? You could, There's nothing wrong with this money. And he gave me two counterfeit 20s, and I figured that was my last night playing with Joe. But oh, it was fun. man. You know? <laughs> it was 
it was uh, it was unique and the well, unique evening. Well, I'll tell you what, you got a hell of a story out of it. So right on. Yeah. Now, those- when, when I rehearsed with him, there was an interesting story, too. We were rehearsing and we took a break and he started telling us all that he had been in Georgia visiting James Brown. And he started telling us that James Brown was all messed up on angel dust and in really bad shape. And I thought to myself, because I'm kind of a musicologist, and I knew that Joe Tex and James Brown had come up through the ranks together. Sure. And used to do shows together when they were first starting out. And my first thought was, you're just jealous of this guy because he's become the greatest, you know, funk soul singer in the history of the world. And you're jealous of him. So you're just spreading some crap. And I was kind of outraged. And we all found out later he was telling the truth. Unbelievable. That kind of leads me to, you know, something that, that, that is very, you know, unique and personal to both you and myself. Now, you and I, when we talk, we always, you know, have those moments of, of, uh, you know, going back in the day and and losing a few brain cells along the way. But you've also, <laughs> you've also been on the straight and narrow now for quite a while, and uh, you know, you've you've definitely served as a mentor to me, realizing that you can be a musician. You know, you can still be a musician without without doing that. How did that work out for you? How did you uh, come to your sobriety? I will tell you, you, you it's not that just that you can be a musician without it. You're going to be a better musician without it. But um, how I came to sobriety, um, I was when I was drinking and drugging, I was out of my mind. You know, I was. Um, there are some people who I won't name who are very well known who knew me back then, especially like when I was playing with Jesse Ed Davis's band back in 75 and 76. They still don't want to talk to me. I was completely out of my mind. Just yesterday, I was on the phone with my dear friend Coco Montoya. And he told me that when John put me in the band, that the whole band was scared of me because <laughs> of how out, out of my mind I was. Oh, wow. So um, I was really, I was into the whole romanticized image of the hard living, hard drinking, hard drugging blues man who dies young and is tormented and crazy and weird and, and all this. And The first tour I did with John Mayall, when I was with Canned Heat and he hired us to back him up, he and I were drinking together. He was drinking, but then he quit. And um, he was drinking like I was. We had a thing. He had a bottle, a wine bottle with a, a label he had made, which was he wrote Chateau Hibiscus on it. And at the end of the night in the clubs, he and I would go through the clubs with a funnel and we would pour the half drank drinks into the wine bottle. Oh, my God. Then he would cap it and we'd let it age overnight. And then we'd sit (laughs) in the backseat of the van the next day drinking it out of martini glasses. Yes, it's a mix of uh, Budweiser and um, (laughs) 
Jack Daniels and uh, Kahlua, you know, this kind of stuff. Oh, man. Nobody else in the band would even touch it, you know. But then John got sober and he started talking to me about it and he, he gave me a good role model. And um, also when I was not on the road with him, I had a bar band in Huntington Beach at a club called Perks. And I played there five nights a week. And for almost two years, the drummer was Richie Hayward from Little Feet. Wow. And he got, he was sober and he would talk to me. And uh, so it was always kind of in the back of my mind that I'm from a really good family, an upstate New York family. I'm Walter Cooper Trout. I am a direct descendant of James Fenimore Cooper, the author, you know. It's a very, very established New York family, the Coopers. And um, I would think I'm from this really respected family and I'm just a, I'm just a clown. I'm an idiot, you know. And but then I was in East Berlin, Germany with John Mayall when it was communist. And we were in the same hotel as Santana and his band. And Santana came up to me after the Mayall gig said, what are you doing? I went, what do you mean? And he said, you're in a world famous band. There's a hundred thousand guitar players would give anything to be standing in the, the same shoes as Eric Clapton and Mick Taylor and Peter Green, who went through John's band. You're in that slot, but you're so drunk on stage. And oh, and then he said, you've been given a gift for music and you could be a great musician. I can hear it, but you're so drunk on stage. And he did this, he flipped the bird at the sky and he said, you're giving this to the one who gave you the gift. Wow. And he, he gave me a book to read, said, go read the book and we'll talk. And we spent the next two days in that hotel, hanging out and having long, deep conversations about life and about talent and about what's important in life. And, um, I went to Mr. Mayo and said, you'll never see me high again. And that was, uh, what was that? July of 1987. Unbelievable. Haven't gone back. Good for you, man. I'm fascinated with your career, with who you, who you were, who you are, who you become, you know, because you're the guy, in my opinion, who embodies the blues who embodies that 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 life you've been a, a a complete just a road dog you are so proficient at your instrument and when you play you know it just comes from your soul and it's a beautiful beautiful sound but you also know that there's so much behind that just the fact that that you're here right now it's it's an absolute blessing before yeah. the whole health the whole, the whole health thing you know I've always considered this man a mentor and an inspiration. I don't have any trouble talking about the drugs or the drinking. I mean, I was a heroin addict, you know. I spent a year or two running around Los Angeles. I was a dealer. I was a gangster. I didn't even play for a couple, for a while there. I don't have any trouble talking about it, but I know that it's, there are so many musicians with this story that I don't feel like it makes me anything unique or special. 
I feel what I am is lucky and very blessed because the guys I came up through the ranks with who did not get the memo about the drugs and the drinking, mm -hmm. they're all dead now, you know. Um, some of my best friends, the guy I started my band with, Jimmy Trapp, my best friend for 30 years, great bass player, but he, he never got the memo and he died at 52, you know, and, um, even to say I'm blessed, it sounds like such a cliche, but I, I'm just, um, I don't know, man, it, I look back on my life. And I try to say, well, I don't have regrets because I it made me who I am. But yes, I do have regrets. Sure. If I like, I I have a line in one of my songs, almost gone. I wish I could go back and do it over, knowing what I know. I think if I knowing what I know now, when that first hit of heroin was offered to me in 1975, I don't think I'd have done it. You know. Sure. Um, but. It was also, though, by by doing that, I got to play for two years with Jesse Edwin Davis, if you know who that is. Right, you know, right. John Lennon's guitarist. He's in the concert for Bangladesh playing with George Harrison and Bob Dylan. Um, he was the guy and I got to be the rhythm player in his band. But there was a whole lot of drugs going on. Sure, know? sure. Like I said, my friend, I'm just so glad that you're on the other side and that you serve as an inspiration and, and, and a total light, you know, to, to, to players like myself and, and to many others, man. And, you know, I'm not one to tell anybody how to live or, or what to do. I just know that for myself, the party had to stop at some point. And I know that you had that same experience. And uh, it's just nice to know that, uh, that I wasn't alone. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like sure. you really came to, to, to my aid, whether you knew it or not, with your encouraging words and just who you were. And, and man, that, that really helped me, man. And, and I appreciate that. And I don't know if I've ever had the chance to say thank you, but here I am saying thank you, my friend. Well, thanks, Ken. That, yeah, that, that moves me. I, I can tell you a story about when, like earlier, I said, you're a better musician without it. Please. And, and the way the day I had that realization was from the time I started playing in bands when I was 17, I didn't do a gig where I was at least smoking some pot and having some beer, mm -hmm. maybe taking some acid or something, right? And, and it was that for years and years. And when I got sober in Germany in John Mayall's band, and I went to him and said, you'll never see me high again. The next night I went out on stage with John and for the first time, what was I? I was probably 35 or 36. For the first time in almost 20 years, I got up and played sober, stone sober, first time. And I walked out on stage just to try my amp and I played a G chord. And my emotional connection to that chord was something I had never felt it was so strong and I played the G chord and I just started weeping like a baby. Oh, and the yeah. realization that I had is that what I had done for all those years was dull the connection between my heart and the music. And, um, you know, if I had it to do over, 
I would have wished I didn't do that, but I, I dulled it. I put a wall between my heart and my feelings in that and the music and the guitar, and suddenly that wall was gone. And my, my emotional connection just to that G chord was like, it ripped my heart out of my chest. I could barely play that night. And then John was giving me solos and I just had tears coming down my face. I was like, now I get it. This is the high. The music is the high. Yeah, man. The connection to your feelings, the ability to express yourself and the ability to communicate with those people out there and to be right on and to be focused and to be completely in the moment. That's that's the high. God, and that's powerful, brother. That is so powerful. I feel every word and you know i know those uh, that are listening right now i can see walter we're, we're having a conversation you know and just just the the expression on your face i even saw you maybe uh tear up just a little bit but man i felt it i felt yeah. it and that's so powerful so let's go in and bring it back just a little bit i know we got a little heavy there but man you were so connected to that instrument. When did you start playing and when did you realize this is what you wanted to do? Well, I started taking trumpet lessons when I was five or six. Um, my older brother is five years older and he played trumpet in the, the high school band and all that. And everything. Um, so I was, he was cool. I was going to do what he did. So I started playing the trumpet and I actually played the trumpet all through high school in the band, the marching band, the orchestra. Um, you know, I was a first chair trumpeter and I was actually a damn good trumpet player. Man, so you I can, would you can read. With, so, you huh? can re so you can read. You can. You I, I could. I once I started playing the blues at all. When I <laughs> but yeah, I was first chair. We were playing Beethoven, you know, in, in the orchestra. But. One of the things I used to do in the marching band that used to get me in trouble, you know, you're marching and you have the little holder for your music on the horn. I'd get tired of that and I'd start blowing solos. I would I'd start playing licks, you know, and the guy'd get all ticked off. But um, I was soloing, you know, couldn't help myself. Nice. But um, I have to say again, it was I have an older brother who was musically very hip. My my parents were both musical aficionados. When I was 10 years old, my mother arranged that I spent the afternoon with Duke Ellington and his orchestra. And I sat on a couch and talked to Duke for an hour. And then I got a trumpet lesson from the great Cat Anderson, who was one of his trumpet players. Wow. And um, so my parents were musically very cool. But my older brother was always bringing me home records. Listen to this. Listen to that. And in 1961 or 62, he brought home an album and said, I know this isn't what you've been listening to, because I was really into I was really into Duke Ellington and Mingus and Eric Dolphy and Coltrane and stuff. Sure. And, so you're going um, jazz. You're like, yeah. You're, you're and he heavy brought jazz home kids. an album and said, this is different, but you need to hear this guy. And it was the first album by Bob Dylan. And I was taken by it. And I it was totally different. It was just a couple of chords and this. I was like, wow. And two, three weeks later, he came home and he said, my, he said, I have a girlfriend I've been dating 
who had an acoustic guitar and she doesn't want it. Would you like it? I, yeah, bring it home, you know. <laughs> and so he brought me a, a guitar and I got a chord book. And I realized if I learned three chords, I could play most of the Bob Dylan tunes and I could go to parties at age 10 and I could be the cool guy. So at age 10, I started <laughs> strumming chords, you know. Sure. And that was like not 1961 or 62 on uh, You're Too Young to Remember, The World Changing on February the 9th, 1964. Um, Channel 2 in Philadelphia, 8 o'clock Sunday night, Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Oh, man. That everything changed. I mean, the the impact I, is hard to explain, but I went into school the next day and, and nothing was ever the same again. And then it was, hey, I want to get an electric guitar and I want to start learning that stuff. That was in 64. So I'm starting to play Beatles songs and 1965, again, the world changed. My brother again comes home goes, I know you like guitar, you need to sit down and listen to this. And it was the first Paul Butterfield album wow. with Michael Bloomfield, right. born in Chicago. And in 1965, nobody played guitar like that. No. Nobody. No. I mean, I love the Beatles and the Stones, but I was hearing guitar solos by Keith Richards and George Harrison, and all of a sudden, here's Michael Bloomfield playing like a like a crazy guy right? right just and um that was it at that point i i told my mom i i know what i want to do now i want to make that sound you hear what that guy's doing i want to make that sound and um i ended up she was on the faculty in my high school and i ended up quitting high school teachers and the guidance counselors are saying why are you quitting I said, because I'm going to be a blues guitar player. So I don't care about this stuff. So was, and was God it bless my mom because she would say to me, even though she was on the faculty and she had to put up with the other teachers telling her, your kid's a dropout. She would hear me and she'd say, you know, I hear you in your bedroom and I think you can do it. I really believe you can do it. Yes. So if this is what you want to do, you want to quit and you want to go play in the band and you want to dedicate your life to playing that guitar, you go ahead. But then she said, but remember, you're basing your entire life on your fingers. So take care of them. So was it was it Paul Butterfield and, and, and uh, Michael Bloomfield that introduced you to, to blues music? Um, my dad had records by B.B. King. He had T-Bone Walker. He had John Lee Hooker, but it, it didn't get me because I liked it, but I didn't. Mike Bloomfield and Butterfield mixed rock and roll aggression and fire with the blues. Yes. They, they put that, you know, that aggression and that fire and that just wild over the top. I mean, that album still, I listen to it still all the time and it right. still blows my mind, you know? So it, even though I was, I was growing up, my dad was playing T-Bone Walker. I was like, yeah, that, that's cool, man. I like that. But when I heard Bloomfield, as my brother said, when he put it on, he said, sit down. Cause when this guy starts playing, you're going to fall down. 
you know. <laughs> and um, so that was it. Bloomfield was was my original. He's the reason I play lead guitar. That's know? fantastic, man. You hear a lot about Hendrix, and you hear a lot about you know Stevie Ray and 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 cats like that, Jimmy Page. I love the fact that you say Mike Bloomfield because that's one guy that should have got even more recognition than he did. And to hear your music and to hear you say that, it makes perfect sense to me now. It makes total sense to me now. And so dig this. On the back of the first Butterfield album, there's Mike Bloomfield and he's playing a Telecaster. So I tell my mom, this guy plays one of these. I don't know what it is, but because I didn't know anything about guitars. So I got to get one of those because he uses it. And I was actually this this I was still in school at this point. So I got an after school job at a department store as a stock boy. And I started saving my money. And the Fender Telecaster at that point with a case was about one hundred and fifty bucks. So I was saving my money and I was almost there. And then an album called Super Session came out and Michael Bloomfield was on the cover with a Les Paul. So now, hey, I got to have a Les Paul. And that was actually about 220 bucks. So I had to keep working and save my money. But that was the first really good electric I bought was a Les Paul. And um, I found the Strat much later, you know. Sure. What was yeah? So I mean, you are pretty much synonymous with the Stratocaster. How did you uh, discover that? <laughs> I had the Les Paul. Um, I dropped it. The neck, the headstock busted off. So I went out. I was still a Gibson guy. I got myself a three thirty-five because I I had gone and seen BB King, right? So I'm going to get something like that. I was at a jam session in Philadelphia with some friends of mine. And I'll be perfectly honest, we were all on LSD. (laughs) And this guy named Bill Brown handed me a Strat and said, try this. And that was it. That was it. I, I felt like I have found my wife, you know. The funny thing is, I'm sitting here right now in my living room, and uh, I sit here all because I'm here alone at home. (laughs) My wife is still in Europe, so I I got my little rig set up here, and I put a movie on with subtitles so I don't have to hear the movie, and I just sit here and blaze away in my living room for hours. You know, I love it. I love it. So you were with Canned Heat as well, right? Well, you know, I had a like a 15 year run in Los Angeles as a sideman. Um, here's some of the people I played with, with not yeah. just Joe Tex, I played with um, John Lee Hooker. I played with Big Mama Thornton. I played with Percy Mayfield, Joe Tex, Lowell Folsom, Pee Wee Creighton, Eddie Cleanhead Vincent. Um, I played with an old dude named J.D. Nicholson, who not many remember, but he was this amazing old black piano player. Um, I played with um, Finest Tasby in his band with Deacon Jones. Finest went on to be the lead singer of the Manish Boys, but at the time, both of those guys had just come out of Freddie King's band. Right. And um, 
So I played with all those guys. I was just a kind of guitar player for hire in, in that circuit up in L.A. And um, I was playing at the Lighthouse, which is a, a legendary club in Hermosa Beach that is still going. Um, I was playing there with J.D. Nicholson and the Soul Benders. And I was the only guy under 60 and I was the only vanilla fella in the band. Right. And a couple of kind of crusty looking dudes came in one night and sat there and listened to me and they stayed there all night. And the next night they came back with some more guys and they walked up and said, we're canned heat. We need a guitarist. So there you go. Wow. And then I was with canned heat for four and a half years and we did three sh- John Mayall put the original Blues Breakers back together in 1982 with Mick Taylor, John McVie, and Colin Allen. Wow. And, you know, McVie from Fleetwood Mac yes. and Mick Taylor. Um, we did three shows opening for them. I met John. I met everybody. We hit it off really well. John said, what are you doing for the next month? And I said, well, can't he's taking a month off. And Mr. Mayall said, I'd like to hear you play rhythm guitar for Mick. So there I was. I went out on the road with the original Blues Breakers, um, which was something else because I remember going out and buying those albums with with Mick Taylor and Clapton and Peter Green and studying the guitar licks. And now here I was playing with these guys, you know. Wow. And um, I went back with Canned Heat for a little while, and then John called up and said he had a new version of the Blues Breakers and he was going to have two guitar players and one of whom was going to be Coco Montoya. Sure. And and then I joined John and stayed with him for five years. Wow. Wow. Now, after that, did you, is that when you uh, pursued a solo career? That is. How did that come about? Well, I would go out on the road with John I would be treated like gold. When you're in that guy's band, you are treated like gold. You're in the inner sanctum. You are taken care of by that man. It's the greatest gig in the world, and he's the best boss on the face of the earth. You know, I love him like a father. And um, but I'd come out every night and play, you know, Royal Festival Hall and stuff like that. And I'd play four or five solos. But then I'd come home from the tour and I'd go down to the bar down here where I had the house band with Richie Hayward and with some other guys. And I would play for five hours and just play. I'd get up and it was whatever I wanted to do for five hours. And that's where I really got to play. And I'm like, I'm (laughs) having... You know, I think I need to have my own band and where I can just go off. Right. And anyway, it was my birthday. Right. And we were playing in a uh, symphony orchestra hall in Gothenburg, Sweden. And I was on the stage thinking, I'm 38 today. It's always been my dream to have my own band. It's always been my dream to write songs to provide the band with a musical direction, um, to be Walter Trout and not just a side guy and to sing. And uh, I either take this gamble 
because a lot of times by 38, guys are trying to recapture their glory years. They're trying to have a comeback. I hadn't even started yet as a solo act. And um, I either stick with John and I can stay in this band. He and I, we love each other dearly. I know I could stay in here for the rest of my life until, you know, he can't do it anymore. Or I can take the gamble and I can see what happens. And I went to his room after the, the gig. And I said, John, I think I'm going to have to leave the band. I think I'm going to have to start my own band. And, um, and he said, well, you're just emotional because it's your birthday. And I said, yeah, I am. But you know what? I'm not going to change my mind. And, and he and I, we both cried and we hugged. And, um, and he said, I'll never forget. He said, I will always support you. And I'm always your friend and I'll always do whatever I can for you in your career. But know this, once you leave my band, don't call me up in a year and say, oh, it didn't work out. I want my gig back. He says, once you're gone, you're gone. I'll have somebody else. So make sure this is what you want to do. Wow. And uh, that's and I left. I went off into the great unknown and he was paying me a lot of money. He was treating me like gold, staying in great hotels. And, but I, I took the gamble. And what the hell, you know? And now here you are, just, I mean, just blowing minds still, and I love it. You have a very unique approach to guitar, in my opinion. You are one of those guys who, uh, who'd like to turn up the gain a little bit. Oh, it's not just a little bit. How did you come to to find that sound? How did you come to to discover that tone and 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 I guess really to to create what is the Walter Trout sound? Well, I have always had this thought in my head that musical instruments are there to really imitate the voice and the voice, the human voice is the ultimate instrument. And a singer can sing a line and go, I love you, my girl. They can hold a note. Right. You put a guitar through a real clean amp, it would be, I love you, my girl. I want it to be like a vocal. I want to be able to go, Woo. I want it to sound vocal. And I have to say a lot of that transpired with me because I used to play a Strat through a Super Reverb, which is what a lot of the, you know, in quotes, blues guys do, and they make right. it sound great. When I was with John, we never took backline. We would, they would, every night they provided his backline and he still does that. So you had me and you had Coco. There were two guitar players and we'd show up at a club we're going to sound check. Okay, what do we got? Okay, good set of drums. Yeah, you got a nice bass amp. Yeah, John has a good keyboard over there. Look, there's a Fender Super Reverb. And look, over here, there's a pig nose. Who gets the pig nose? <laughs> who gets the Super? And me and Coco would duke it out, right? Uh, right. And one night in, Ro in Roanoke, Virginia, um, and I mean, it could get heavy. Who gets the good amp? Who gets the piece of shit, right? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And, um, one night in Roanoke, Virginia, we did the sound check and the amp I had, eventually Coco and I got 
made a plan where we took turns. Um, who, who gets their pick? Okay, sure. tonight it's my turn. I get to take my pick. Tomorrow night you get to take your pick, right? Because there's two amps. Right. Roanoke, Virginia, we did a sound check, and I had this horrific amp, and I was just like, I can't even use this thing. And this is back really before pedals. Pedals were a new thing. You right. didn't, they didn't have overdrive pedals. Um, the sound guy comes up and goes, hey, Walter, I have this this amp. It's by a company called Mesa Boogie. You want to try <laughs> it? I said, yeah, why not? Can't be any worse. Right. I show up. We come back to the gig, and he's got a double stack. He's got two 4 by 12 cabinets on top of each other, and he's got a Mark One head up there. And he goes, what do you want? I said, I want sustain. So he goes and he fools with it. And I started playing, man. And uh, I realized this is, I was still drinking. I know I blew the band off the stage because I just went over and cranked that thing up and stood in front of that stack. Just, it was <laughs> heavenly. But the next day I called up Boogie and said, I play with John Mayall and they gave me an endorsement and I've been with them ever since. And I have based a lot of my style on what that amplifier can do. When you get a boogie amp, it comes with suggested settings. Right. And now this one doesn't go over so good in blues circles, but I'll tell you, I set the amp for death metal and I leave it there. I don't <laughs> channel switch. I don't play. Th I, I put it on the, the gain channel, the gain and the driver all the way up. And, um, I just leave it there. And if I want to play clean, I turn the guitar down. I do it all with the volume button on the guitar. I love and I don't it. use pedals. God, man, that's amazing. Well, you know, I, I have my 30th album is in the can. Wow. It's, right it's going to come out in August. And um, I have to say, I was up at the Boogie Factory and um, I was up there hanging out with those guys and over in the corner on the wall I saw an old original Mark One. Um, and I said, wow, look at that. And they told me that it belonged to a very, very famous, iconic guitar player who I can't name and that he had brought it in to be repaired in 1978 and had never picked it up. And would I like it? And... Um, this is how good they are to me. And I said, well, yeah, that's great, but there's no reverb in it. And the guy said, well, hang out for an hour and I'll put a reverb <laughs> in there for you. And on, on this new album I did, I've done about 90% of the guitars on that amp. Oh, my gosh. And it's, um, it's really an amazing thing. Now, it was a loner, and they did call me recently and say, look, Gibson has, has bought Boogie, and... I need to get the app back. It wasn't like they said, here, you can have it. it right, was, right, right. You want to use this thing. Right. And, um, but I never took it on the road. I was too scared if it got stolen. I, right. I didn't want to have to say to them, yeah, that big time mega famous guy now wants his amp back and Walter had it on the road and it got, so, but I used it in the studio and it, it's beautiful, man. It's a beautiful sound on there. I can't so, wait for you to hear it. You know? I can't wait to hear it, man. Yeah, so you, this is going to be your 30th. 30th. 
Wow. Right on, man. Hardworking guy. I've had, I've had a band for 32 years and I've done my, my 30 albums. I had two years off basically cause I was dead. But uh, other than that, I've done an album a year, you know? Gosh. Well, let's, let's go there. Let's go down that road just a little bit, man. So you had quite the health scare and it wasn't looking very good. Would you mind telling everybody what all happened to you? Um, no, not at all. Um, I had symptoms for a while. I was having equilibrium problems. Um, I was getting cramps in my hands where my hands would cramp up and I couldn't play. I was really falling apart. And we found out that I had a disease called hepatitis C. Not sure where I got it. Could have been the two years of, uh, you know, heroin addiction. Who knows? But, you know, that was back in 75. So it, it had hung on a long time if that's when I got it. But a lot of people of my age have hepatitis C, and some of them don't know where they got it. There's a lot of people that have it that didn't take drugs, didn't drink. You get it from a tattoo. You could get it from a dentist. You could get it from from uh, a, me- a medical procedure if if like the the thing was not cleaned properly, you know. But sure. anyway, so we started thinking, okay, it's time. I have to really take care of my liver now. I'll start eating only organic food and I'll eat only, you know, uh, brown rice and, 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 you know, really take, but it kept getting worse and worse. And we went up to UCLA and, um, this guy, this hepatologist told me, he said, no, you have a transplant in your future. You might as well get used to it. And, um, I got worse and worse. I ended up getting a, a, uh, condition called ascites, which is where your your abdomen fills up with fluid. And I would go in once a week or once every two weeks, and they would put a drain in my stomach, and they would take out 25 pounds of liquid. Unbelievable. And that was only half. They said they could only take out half or I'd go into shock. So I was carrying 50 pounds of liquid in my gut, even though I lost... 120 pounds over the course of four months. Wow. Um, they ended up finally putting me in the hospital. I was, I was in UCLA, which is supposed to be the transplant Mecca. And they told my wife, we can't help him. He's going to die. You need to get ready because he's going to die. Um, the great, great blues singer, Curtis Salgado. Yes, sir. Called up my wife and said, look, he goes, Marie, I had a transplant in Omaha with this miracle doctor. Here's his number. Call him. My wife called this miracle doctor, Dr. Dan Schaefer. And um, he said, get him out here. She showed up with another friend of mine at UCLA at 6 a.m. And they said, we're getting out of here. And they took me to the airport. They carried me on a plane, literally had to be carried. We went to Omaha. And uh, Dr. Schaefer and his team saved my life. But I did end up there in the bed for eight months. And in that time, I got brain damage. 
I lost the ability to speak. I got so far out, I didn't recognize my children or my wife. Wow. And um, was very, very close yeah. to um, not making it. And finally, they found a liver match for me, and they gave me the transplant on, um, on May 26th of 2014. Now, I didn't get to come home until September because um, it took me a long time to, to even get red, start to recover from the surgery and from what I had been through. But they finally sent me home in September, and I came home, and um, I didn't know how to play the guitar anymore. I had to relearn how to talk. I had to relearn how to walk because if you're in bed for eight months, your legs don't work. Right. Um, and I sat down and I, due to the brain damage, I had no recollection of how to play a guitar. Like, what is this thing? And my wife would show me videos of me and I'd be like, I don't I can't relate to that guy. I don't know who that is. And I can't do that. And she said, no, you, you know, well, you got to start over. So I sat on the couch and taught myself from scratch, you know, like, uh, hey, here's a G chord. Wow, that's a chord. And then, wow, let's try this. Wow, that's a bar chord. Look, I can do it, you know. Right, right. And I, I sat here six or seven hours a day every day for a year, and it yeah. came back. And then my dear girl said, Walter, you know I love you, but you've been through a trauma and I have to tell you, you're a real pain in the ass to be around. And you have to either go see a shrink and talk about it, or why don't you write a song? She said that to me, write a song. And she gave me that idea. And in two days, I wrote 18 songs. Is this what became and Battle Scars? That became Battle Scars. And I did not write them to be recorded. I wrote them as therapy. And they're really dark and they're really graphic and really descriptive. Um, and, but, and, in my opinion, quite possibly the greatest blues rock record of all time. I am not wow. kidding. Yeah. It is dark. But there's that semblance of, of hope. There's that, that silver lining that's in there. A lot of stuff that you listen to today is just very, very generic, very, you know, it just, it is what it is. It, you know, this had the substance behind it. This had the reality behind it. It was so powerful and so strong. And I love your records, my brother. I love your records. That one in particular knocked me out and still I'm laid out. That's my, that's quite possibly my favorite blues rock record ever. Well, I can tell you, I've been asked sometimes in interviews that when I croak and people look back on my career, um, you know, what are they going to think? And, and I always say, probably, uh, I mean, I hate saying this because I'm still recording, I'm still writing, I'm still playing, but I think probably my creative peak was that record because I had so much to say. Right. That tells the story. It starts off with a, a song called Almost Gone, which means I'm just about dead. Right. And it ends with a song called I'm Gonna Live Again. Yes. And it takes you through the whole thing. It takes you through laying in the hospital bed at night and people coming in to take your blood and, and um, 
some of the brutal stuff I went through, it's all on there. And as I say, I only wrote it for myself to get it out right. and not hold it in. And then we were like, wow, I've got like 18 tunes here. So I called up my producer. I think I'm ready to make a record, you know? Wow. And um, so we did that. And it, it's, it's a very dark um, I was listening, was listening the other day to um, the song Omaha. Right. And I even mentioned Dr. Dan in there. He's in the lyrics. Dr. Dan says, just hold on if you want to see another dawn. But I know that by tomorrow I may be gone here in Omaha, you know, and um, some of it um, is brutal, man. Um Push, you know, when you're in a hospital bed, you have a button you push that's supposed to bring the nurses. Right. And there's the lyrics, uh, push the button, hear me call. Ain't nobody coming. I hear them out there laughing in the hall. And that was true. There was a couple of nights that I needed something. I couldn't get out of the bed. I could barely talk. I don't want to get too graphic, but I needed a nurse quickly. Right. Right. And I would be pushing that button. And um, I actually think I got one nurse maybe fired because I pushed that button for 45 minutes and I could hear her out there joking with her friends. And then she came in and yelled at me for pushing the button. And I told my wife about this the next day. And then we never saw that nurse again. Wow. um, So, you know, it's really graphic. Yeah. You know, but yeah. I think it's probably my about as honest as I can be. That's a beautiful record, man. That is my, again, just my all time favorite. If you guys have not checked that out, I mean, if you want to know about Walter, if you want to check out his music, 30 records, 30 records, 30 records, that one. I don't know. It, it it does something to me. It it moves me in in ways that that records you know it, it few and far between move me. So you know, check that out. It's called Battle Scars. I love it. Well, I know that we're kind of running low here on time, so I'm gonna go ahead and just jump on into this. We usually do this at the end anyway, but um, you know, you're you're a guitar player, guitar player, man. So top three guitar players. You know, to me, when people go like, oh, well, this guy over here is the greatest guitarist on the planet, I think, well, maybe in a certain genre, that guy's really good. But what about classical guitar players? Sure. Jazz guitar players or bossa nova, flamenco guitar players. Absolutely. Um, You know, but the guys that I still like to listen to in guitar, I, I still just the other day I was watching some Roy Buchanan. I stole a lot of stuff from him and he became a friend of mine near the end of his life. You know, um, I still like Mike Bloomfield. I like the guys that um, inspired me and I don't really listen to sort of like a lot of uh, modern guys. I. There's some great ones out there, you know, who, you know, you know who they are, the great ones who are out there right now. But I still go back to what inspired me because I hear something in there. I hear what it felt like when I was a kid listening to Buddy Guy, his his early stuff or B.B. Sure. King 
or Roy Buchanan or Mike Bloomfield. That's the genre that I like, but I can't say this guy's the best on the planet. Listen to Paco DeLucia. Right. Come on. There you go. Yes. Yes. Good job, man. Top three Desert Island records. (laughs) Probably the first Butterfield album. Okay. Um, Maybe Aretha's Greatest Hits and uh, something by Luther Vandross. I like singers. I really like singers. When I said to you, I think instruments are there to imitate the human voice. I I love to hear vocalists. Luther Vandross blows my mind, as does Aretha. (laughs) I think Aretha was in a class of her own. Nobody liked it. Um, And last but not least... If there's one song you wish you wrote, what would it be? Wow. Alfie. Interesting. Right on. I will tell you, if the lyrics of Alfie, if I could sum up my philosophy of life, it's the lyrics of Alfie, and I can't even talk about it. I'm, that song just, you know. That's great, man. Lyrically, that is the greatest just this is what life is about. This right. is what everything is about. Starts off with what's it all about. It lays it out. Here's what it's all about. Brother, where can we find you? Where, uh, you know, where on the uh, Internet or um, how do people, you know. Well, I'm on Facebook with my band page, just Walter Trout. There's a few Walter Trout pages on there by fans. If you look for the one that's got about 120,000 followers, that's the one that I run with my wife. Um, there is a website, waltertrout.com. I am going to be um, doing a short tour in the East Coast um, at the end of March into April. Um, I'm going to be doing um, some gigs in May. I'm going to be doing a uh, benefit for organ donation at Knuckleheads on May the 7th in oh, Kansas wow. City. Yes. Um, for my good friend Merle Zool. It's it's Merle Jam, and he's a heart recipient, so he and I bond, and I love doing this because that's the cause that I believe in is organ donation. That's what saved this man's life. So there you go. You, know, you want to help somebody else out? Check out that organ donation. It really does make a difference, man. Well, this has been great, man. Brother, I appreciate it more than you know, and I'm just wishing you lots of love, and I'm wishing you the best of luck, and I'm so happy to see you again. And, uh, man, I certainly hope that you and I can make some noise again here real soon, man. I hope so, too, man. I'm going to be in um, in July. I'm going to be in Minneapolis. Why don't you come down and play with my band? I would be absolutely honored, man. Let's make that happen, brother. Let's do it. All right, my friend. Everybody, this is Walter Trout. Go check him out on his socials. Go check out his music, Battle Scars. My gosh. Check out that record. If you don't check out anything else, that thing will knock you out. It's amazing. Uh, Brother, it's good to see you, man, and we'll be talking to you again real soon. It's great to see you, Ken. Much love to you, my friend. All right, well, there you have it. Oh, man, I love that guy. He is truly one of the most genuine, righteous souls out there. And his story is uh, its something else. That guy should have a movie made about him. 
I want to thank my special guest this week, Mr. Walter Trout. I urge you guys to go find his music on all the streaming platforms or uh, wherever else Mr. Trout sells his music. Go check out his uh, live show. He's going to knock you out. He is so good. Uh, you guys will not be disappointed. Also, find him on his socials. Speaking of music and socials and all that stuff, you can go ahead and find me and all I'm doing, including my brand new record, Saints and Sinners, on my website, www.kenvaldez.com. Over there, you can find out more about this podcast. You can also uh, find links to all my socials and find out what I've been up to. Sign my mailing list, please. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. Also... If you guys like this podcast and you want to show a little love and support, go hit me up on Venmo. My Venmo handle is at Ken Valdez. Your support helps this podcast stay on the air, and it also helps bring in great guests like Mr. Walter Trout to you every week. Well, I guess that's about it for now, everybody. So, as always, be good to each other. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.